Father's Word is indeed an abiding Word, and mindful of that, we turn in the Scriptures again, we would worship God in the reading and the hearing and the preaching of His Word. And you can see in your bulletin, as I mentioned earlier, I think we're turning to 1 Timothy now, 1 Timothy chapter 4. We launched this new sermon series a few weeks back. Our theme in this series is what I'm calling the habits of grace. The habits of grace. The idea being the Christian life that we're called to live, it is a life that's all about our experience of the grace of God. And it's a life in which we experience that grace in part as he is pleased to bless our own regular efforts to seek and serve him. The habits of grace. So last week, we did a little bit more foundation laying, and we did so by turning to Titus chapter 2. You don't need to turn there now, but just remember as a refresher what we heard last week from Titus 2. Paul says this, The grace of God has appeared... Bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people For his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Those words that we turned to last week in Titus. And so we noticed in there the appearing of grace. When the Son of God came into the world, the grace of God was put on display in human history in a new way. The appearing of grace. We also noticed the effect of of grace, that is the effect of it in our own lives, and the effect of grace is that grace trains. Grace trains us to renounce sin and to live uprightly and to wait for Jesus. Grace trains, that's the effect of it. And then thirdly, we also notice the purpose of grace. The purpose of grace all along was that Christ should have a people for himself. Zealous for good works. He died for that. To have a people like that. And he lives for it still. The purpose of grace. So that was last week. Over in Titus. That brings us to this week. 1 Timothy chapter 4. I'll say I hadn't planned it this way. But it turns out that each of these. First three weeks. We're touching down. In one of the pastoral letters. It was written by the Apostle Paul. So over the course of these first three weeks, we will have covered First and Second Timothy and Titus, Paul's so-called pastoral letters. So you can see in your bulletin, we're going to focus on verses 6 through 10, but I am going to read beginning at verse 1 so that we can see what leads Paul into what he says in verse 6. So First Timothy 4, beginning at verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says 
that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hopes set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word, and we thank you for your spirit, for you minister to us by word and spirit. We hear the word as we just have and as we're about to, and it is your Holy Spirit who causes us to understand that word, who grants us to love that word so that we go forth and live in its light. So, Spirit of God, would you work among us now? And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. When it comes to any training program that you might get involved in, let's think for a little bit about physical training, bodily training, exercise, and so forth. When it comes to any training program, when you're thinking about committing to it, signing the dotted line, as it were, perhaps entering your credit card number, as that might be involved, the question that's lingering in the back of your mind, and it might not stay in the back of your mind, it might actually work its way to the front of your mind, the question that you're wondering about is, is this going to be worth it? Is this going to be worth it, what I gain from this? This training program, here I'm about to commit myself to working out regularly and eating these foods and not eating those foods and following this plan and perhaps going to this gym and purchasing that fitness equipment. Is this going to be worth it? And that, that question can linger, perhaps can make you pause before you click, having entered your credit card number. Well, when it comes to physical training, bodily training, exercise, and so forth, I think we all know there are no precise promises about precise outcomes and about how it's going to make you feel down the road. There are no ironclad guarantees, but still there's that part of us that wants to know, can I be confident that this is going to be worth it? How confident can I be? So it's remarkable to think, 
And isn't it reassuring to know that when it comes to training for godliness, we can be quite confident of it, that it's going to be worth it. The payoff, the outcome, which is godliness itself, is going to be valuable for us in this life and in the life to come. And Paul says so. The Apostle Paul says so right here in 1 Timothy 4. So here we're we're focusing on verses 6 through 10. That's what we're going to focus our attention on this morning, verses 6 through 10. The first thing I want to do is simply walk through these verses. Let's see what's here. Let's get an overview. And then when we've done that, we'll take a step back, think about lessons we can learn from it. So we'll walk through first, and then lessons learned second. So let's take a look here at verses 6 through 10. As I've said before, this is a letter that Paul's writing to another man about being a pastor. And yet, as I've also said before, there's a lot in here that's for all of us, for Christians in general. And that's for two reasons. First of all, the minister's a Christian too, the pastor, and so he's got to live like one. And that comes through in these pastoral letters that Paul wrote. And also because even when he's being told particularly about how to be a pastor, well, even then, he's being told about helping people to live the Christian life. And so even then, it's not hard to read between the lines and to see what the implications are for all of us in our day-to-day living. So there's a lot in this passage that's for all of us. Let's walk through it. Verse 6. Paul says, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. So there's Paul giving Timothy a good word about being a pastor. He's saying, Timothy, the things that I've just said to you, in other words, The things that Paul says in the opening verses in this chapter. Timothy, what I've just said to you, for example, about the goodness of creation and and so forth. No matter what anybody else says, you teach that. You teach these things. Timothy, that's what will make you a good servant of Christ. Timothy, that's what you've been trained for. As a servant of Christ, you've been trained in in good doctrine expressed in good words. Timothy, you teach these things. And then he warns him. After verse 6, then he warns him. Paul warns Timothy not to get distracted. Look at verse 7. Verse 7, he says, Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Now, this is something that comes up several times in 1 Timothy, and not just 1 Timothy, but also 2 Timothy and Titus in all three of the pastoral letters. Paul wants to make sure that Timothy doesn't get distracted from the truth By all kinds of wild ideas and fantastic claims. The kinds of things that people get so easily sucked into. Because they're interesting. They might seem important. They might seem valuable. 
Paul says, Timothy, don't allow yourself to be distracted by those kinds of things. For that matter, don't allow that kind of nonsense to take root and spread in the church at large. He says this over and over again. For example, if you flip back to the beginning of this letter, chapter 1, it's almost the very first thing he says to Timothy in 1 Timothy. Chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, he says, Timothy, charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations. That's the first thing he says in the letter. And then if you go to the end of the letter, chapter 6, it's still on Paul's mind. Chapter 6, verse 20, he says this, Timothy, avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. Chapter 6, verse 20, irreverent babble. Over in 2 Timothy, chapter 4, verse 4, he says it again. 2 Timothy 4, verse 4, he says this, people will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And one more. He says it in Titus. Titus chapter 1, verse 14. He says that people shouldn't devote themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. You see, this comes up in all three pastoral letters. And it comes up three times in this letter, 1 Timothy. Gives you some sense of the threat that Paul perceived this to be. So here in our verse, it's have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Now, Paul does not go into detail here about what these myths are that he has in mind. He doesn't elaborate, but we can guess. What some folks have suggested is that There were these imaginative storylines that were out there in Paul's day. And they were storylines that had to do with various Old Testament figures and family trees. And they were storylines that were potentially fascinating for Christians. And that's because they did involve actual biblical figures and family trees. And it got Christians wondering and speculating about things that were not in the Bible. But maybe they had to do with things that were in the Bible. And so maybe they were important and interesting to explore and figure out. You know how it goes. You can tell yourself that you're being holy and pious and Bible-believing and Bible-interested when, in fact, you're just letting your mind wander off into all kinds of religious nonsense. Kinds of things that people get so easily sucked into. It's actually irreverent, says Paul. There's nothing God-honoring about these myths. It's positively silly, says Paul. There's nothing weighty and substantive and important about these things. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Instead, Timothy, and here's the contrast, verse 7 goes on, look at what he says next. Instead, rather, train yourself. 
for godliness. Verse 7. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Instead of allowing yourself to be distracted by those irreverent, silly myths. No, you do this. You make this your way of life. Train yourself for godliness. And then he says, why? See what's next? Verse 8. There's a reason why Timothy ought to give himself carefully, undistractedly to the cause of godliness. And the reason is verse 8. Paul says, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So that's the reason that he gives. That's the promise that he highlights. Notice, it's a twofold promise. Godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. And then keep going. Notice what Paul says next. Apparently, judging from the next verse, verse 9, that promise, that promise of value, apparently, that was a saying among Christians. That was a familiar and repeated thing to say among Christians because what does he say in verse 9? He says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. In other words, Timothy, this promise that I've just set before you as a reason why you ought to give yourself to godliness, that twofold promise, you can bank on it. You can trust it. You can accept it. You can build your whole life and ministry upon that foundation. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Verse 9. And then he rounds it all off in verse 10. Take a look at verse 10. He says this. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hopes set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who... Who believe. Now, I'll just say that word there at the very end, translated especially, that does sound a little funny, doesn't it? To talk about God being the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. What on earth would that mean? Well, that word, and you might have a, a note in your study Bible that notes this, that word can also be translated. That is to say, in which case, Paul would be saying something like this, God is the Savior of all people, that is to say, those who believe. In other words, Paul's saying something there about the expansiveness of God's grace. God saves all sorts of people. We talked about that last week, the gospel of God. It's a gospel for the whole globe. That's true. And after saying that, Paul can also clarify that it is believers that God actually saves. So that in one breath, perfectly consistently, perfectly compatibly, Paul can affirm the expansiveness of God's grace and then also narrow in and highlight the particularity of that same grace. In any case, what Paul's saying there in verse 10 as a whole is that 
is that we toil and strive, as he puts it. We toil and strive for godliness as those who have hope. Our God is the living God, and our hope is in the living God. Our hope, our confidence, is that the living God is going to bring us to life as well. Our hope, our confidence, is that all of our toiling and striving for godliness isn't going to turn out to be futile. It's going to work, if we can put it that way. It's going to pay off. It's going to end well. Because he's the living God. And we're going to experience that very life in our toiling and striving. And as a result of it. So there's our walkthrough. There's our overview, verses 6 through 10. It boils down to this. Timothy, teach. Don't get sucked into myths. Train yourself for godliness. Do so because you trust the promise of God. Do so because yours is hope in the living God who saves Timothy. He is saving you. So you see, it it is a word for Timothy about being a pastor, but there's so much in it that's not just for pastors, but it's for every Christian. So there's a walkthrough, verses 6 through 10. Now, the question becomes, what do we take from that? What What do we learn from that? What can we glean from Paul's words here? And I want to briefly highlight three things for us that we can take from it. And I'll go ahead and tell you right now what they are. The first is the calling to training. The second is the promise of training. And the third is what we might call the danger of distraction. Okay, those three. The calling to training, the promise of training, and the danger of distraction for those of us who would be trained So first of all, the calling to training. Paul says, Timothy, this is a major theme for us today. Train yourself for godliness. And that's a good word for all of us. You might say it's a good three words. Train yourself for godliness. And think about all three of them. First of all, the word train. The Christian life is, on one level, a training program. And sure enough, training involves habits. And habits are meant to develop strength and stamina. And those habits require sacrifice. And those habits require perseverance. The kinds of things that we're talking about in this series. Going to church. Reading your Bible. Spending time in prayer. Getting together with the people of God. There are no shortcuts. The Christian life, on one level, is a training program. So train. But then what's the next word? Yourself. Train yourself for godliness. I keep hearing these ads on TuneIn for a fitness company called Beachbody, which strikes me as a terribly unfortunate name for a fitness company. At least it's a colossal failure in advertising and algorithms on TuneIn because I want to say, I'm about to turn 52 Beachbody ain't happening. 
You just wasted some advertising dollars playing this ad for me. But I will say there's something about those ads that rings true. Because in those ads for Beachbody, it's the head of the company. And he, what he says is this. He says, those plans you have to make changes and get in shape, he says, you really can do it. It can happen. But then he says, but nobody can do it for you. He says that in the ad. Nobody can do it for you. And he says, maybe what you need, maybe what you've been lacking, and here's the salesman, is a supportive community of folks who can come alongside you and help you to do for yourself what, finally, only you can do for yourself. And that's, that's the part of the ad that rings true. And it rings true spiritually. On the one hand, we do want to be a community. We want to be a church family where we encourage one another, where we support one another when it comes to godliness. But on the other hand, nobody can do it for you. Christian, you're going to have to train yourself. Not in a way that blocks out the church, certainly not in a way that blocks out the grace of God. No, it is in humble reliance upon the grace of God. That you, you go after this training. But you are going to have to assume some personal responsibility for fixing your gaze on godliness and going after it, right? Train yourself. And then the third word, train yourself for godliness. What are we after here? What's the goal? The goal is not just... Generic aspirations to be a better person. It's godliness. And that's a great, rich, full, meaningful word. Godliness. It's a word that can also be translated piety. And let me say, let's glory in the word piety. Don't be ashamed of it. It just means having a sense of your place before God, even your indebtedness to God, and living like it. Godliness, piety, having a sense of your place before God, even your, your indebtedness to God, and living like it. That's the goal, to be the kind of people who fix our gaze on God and who, are, who know ourselves in the light of what we see and who live like it. And it takes training to get there. It takes each of us training ourselves in the company of the community, which is the congregation. It takes training to get there. Godliness doesn't just happen. We don't naturally drift toward godliness, even as those who have been redeemed and renewed by God. We don't naturally drift toward godliness. To the contrary, we drift away from it if we put no effort toward it. And that's why it takes training to get there. I know, I know I've mentioned before, um, D.A. Carson has this great two-volume devotional that takes you through a Bible reading program over the course of a year. 
I've made my way through it before. And, and Christy noticed this amazing quote just a few days ago on this very point. Here's uh, D.A. Carson reflecting upon what's going on in the Bible book of Nehemiah. And he's reflecting upon the reality that God's people had drifted. And, and it was going to take effort to come back. Listen to how Carson puts it. Quote, One of the most striking evidences of sinful human nature lies in the universal propensity for downward drift. In other words, it takes thought, resolve, energy, and effort to bring about reform. In the grace of God, sometimes human beings display such virtues, but where such virtues are absent, the drift is invariably toward compromise, comfort, indiscipline, sliding disobedience, and decay that advances sometimes at a crawl and sometimes at a gallop across generations. He goes on, people do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to Scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. No, we drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. End quote. That's D.A. Carson, and that is really sobering. Because that wasn't just true in Nehemiah's day. But it's true in our own. People do not drift toward holiness. That's why we train for it. As sobering, as chilling as that quote is in Carson's devotional, that doesn't mean that we have to be paralyzed now with fear. It just means we have to take a deep, trusting breath and say, okay, this, this has to happen. Train myself for godliness. So that's the first of our three points today, the calling to training. Here's the second. It's the promise of training. After the calling comes the promise. And remember, the promise is in verse 8. That's where Paul encourages Timothy. He says, bodily training is of some value. Godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. And think about that. Godliness holds value for the present life. And as soon as I say that, we've got to recognize we're walking a very fine line here. If we're not careful thinking about the value of godliness in the present life, if we're not careful, we can start wandering pretty close to some pretty poisonous ideas about the Christian life. As soon as you say something like, godliness pays off in the present life, 
people might make the mistake of thinking that you're saying, if you live a godly life in this life, everything's going to go great for you in this life. Pain-free, problem-free, suffering-free. If you live a godly life in this life, everything's going to go great. The Bible does not teach that. Paul is not teaching that here. Paul is not making here any such sweeping health and wealth claims. But what he is saying here, what he is implying here, is that there is some blessedness that's to be known even in this life when you live a godly way. And we shouldn't shrink back from that. Or, or steer clear of affirming that because we're so skittish about sounding health and wealth. There's the blessedness, for example, that comes from the approval of your own conscience. And how sweet that blessedness is. There's the relief that comes from knowing that your sins are forgiven. Because one aspect of godliness is walking close with the Lord in repentance and confession. There's also the sweetness of the fellowship that you enjoy with fellow Christians. There's also the difficulty and the ruin that you avoid by avoiding sin, which makes for ruin and difficulty. And all of that, and we can keep going, all of that is value that you gain in this life. None of that do you have to wait to get to heaven to experience. It's right here, right now. Godliness holds promise for the present life. And then, of course, it also holds promise for the life to come. And that's because the the life of godliness is the pilgrim's pathway by which you make your way to heaven. And it's also because the life of godliness results in the storing up of rewards that are waiting for you there. That's the promise of training. It's worth it. Godliness is is worth it. It's valuable. Right here, right now. And forever. That's the promise of it. So the calling to training. Then came the promise of training. Here's the third of three points. Which is the danger of distraction. And we've got to be realistic about this. The danger of distraction. For me one of the most striking aspects of this whole passage. Is that Paul gets into this whole business about training right after he says to Timothy, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Paul gets into this whole discussion of training for godliness by starting there. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. So what's the connection here? What's the flow that we're observing in Paul's words? The connection is that the opposite of proper training, 
The opposite of wise, skilled, effective training of yourself for godliness is to allow yourself to get distracted. Distracted by things like irreverent, silly myths in Timothy's case. And isn't that true when it comes to bodily training as well? You know how it works. You can resolve to get in shape. And you can come to all of these good, healthy conclusions about good, healthy living and changes that you're going to make and habits that you're going to cultivate, habits in things like nutrition and sleep and exercise, but then you can very quickly allow yourself to get distracted. Maybe it's the lure of junk food. Distracted. You can almost feel it pulling you away. Maybe it's something different. Maybe it's not what is overtly, obviously junk food. Maybe it's the appeal of shortcuts. Easy strategies, quick fixes, latest fads when it comes to things like nutrition and sleep and exercise. The latest fitness app or wearable device or diet craze, whatever it might be. Because you think, oh, this will do it. This will make it easy. This will be a shortcut. But then, of course, it doesn't work. And so, of course, then you're off looking for the next one. And then the next one. And on and on it goes. Perhaps without even realizing just how distracted and waylaid you've become. It's that way with bodily training. It's that way with godliness, too. There is spiritual junk food all around us. All kinds of junk that we might put into our hearts and minds. The things that we read, the things that we listen to, the voices that we tune into. And some of it might seem Christian, holy. But it's all so much distraction. And spiritually as well, there's also the appeal of spiritual shortcuts, easy strategies, quick fixes, latest fads. Just say this prayer, or read that book, or join this Facebook group, or visualize that reality, and voila. This will do it. This will make it easy. This will be a shortcut. But then it doesn't work, and so then you're off looking for the next one, and the next one distracted. This is why it matters. This is one of so many reasons why it matters to be trained in proper training. This is why it matters that we encourage one another as a church family in these things. This is why it matters that we open our eyes and get real about the distractions around us, especially the ones that distract each and every one of us personally. And I wonder, what are yours? As you think about training yourself for godliness, what is it in your own life that gets you looking away, wandering away? What are yours? It's one of the reasons why it's valuable for us to be considering these things together as a church family, which is what we're up to these days. We're far less likely to allow ourselves to get distracted if we can look around and see other folks 
who are committed to the same kind of wise, skilled, effective, biblical training program and who are living it out. So those lessons that we can learn together today, brothers and sisters, the calling to training, the promise of it, and the danger of distraction to get back to where we got started, it's worth it. To sign up for this, to persevere in this, it's worth the commitment, it's worth the trust, and it's worth the wariness. Because it it does take some investment of, of energy just to be wary in the way that you've got to be. It's worth it. New Hope Presbyterian Church, don't be distracted. But let's train and let's train together. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace, your grace which abounds. We know ourselves today to be those whom you have called to train for godliness. And we thank you for the promise that you've set before us that this is valuable right here, right now. In this life and for the life to come. And then we say forgive us. For we are prone to being distracted We pray that you would bring us back. We thank you for the gift of the Sabbath day, that this is a weekly opportunity to come back and be reminded and refreshed in our commitment to this training program. May it be so even today. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.